It's not really a good, there's not a huge fun fire. Actually, there was a fire at the fair, and they needed water, and so they came to me. And in the middle of the night, it's just kind of one of those weird sounds that you kind of like, that could be a bear. Yeah. As soon as we start leaving that campsite, he's like, I, I literally can't walk. So I like lived in the camp with yeah, that's a good story. I was working that one of the husky games. And the boy comes from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Okay. I think I've read that. We one. were like, oh well the next time we come, we're gonna come with Emma. And we're like four, you know, and she's gonna wanna see all the best. So we're at the wrong airport. Like what do you do when you're at the wrong it airport? Is, you know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face. And I One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We're praying and and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part. We could see base camp. Well, hello and welcome to Cornwall Church. We're glad that you're here with us today. Whether you're watching online, Boca Raton, in Skagit, or right here in Bellingham, always an honor to be together. And this morning we are continuing in this summer series called Stories Worth Telling. And uh, I am so excited because I get to share another passage with you, another story, um, this time out of the New Testament, that has blown my mind for a long time. Before we get there, I'm going to tell you something that's going to be very hard for you to believe. When I was in elementary school, I was not a popular kid. I know, hard to believe, is it not? I did not lie to you. But let's review some tape. Here's some pictures. <laughs> Kindergarten, bedhead, yup, rocking it. Got a polo, that's third grade. And fifth grade, you can see a difference in hairstyle and a turtleneck has entered the scene. And I am crushing it. That's me in elementary school. Now, elementary school had a lot of great experiences, a lot of great memories and wonderful teachers. I remember one thing in particular that didn't go so well, and maybe some of you have shared an experience like this. It involves recess and the playground. You know, it's like all the people are saying, let's play kickball. So you go and you play kickball, and then two people are randomly elected to be captains. And then they start the draft. And every time... I ended up at the latter half of the draft, if not the end of the draft. And as a young kid, that is a tough pill to swallow. That makes you feel a little bit unwanted, a little bit invaluable, a little bit insignificant. And maybe you can share that experience. Maybe you've had an experience like that um, in, in, as a similarity to me, where you felt like you're on the outside looking in. And that is never... A pleasant feeling. And what I love is the story that I get to share with you today. It, it highlights the fact that God also shares our aversion to having people be on the outside, be outsiders looking in. And that, that story takes place in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your, your Bible, your phone, or your tablet, you can turn to Acts chapter 10. And as you do, I want to catch you up to speed. Um, because Acts happens right after the Gospels. If you're not familiar with that, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is arrested. 
He's falsely accused. He's beaten. He's crucified. He's murdered on the cross. He's put in a tomb. He is dead. The disciples are horrified. They are terrified. They don't know what to do with themselves. So they lock themselves in an upper room. On the third day, Jesus conquers death. And he reveals himself to some women and then to his disciples, like some of his disciples who are hiding in this upper room. And one of the things that I believe is the greatest argument for the validity of Christianity is the shift in these 12. They went, or excuse me, these 11 at this time. They went from being terrified and hiding in an upper room to going out and boldly proclaiming the love of Jesus Christ for everybody at the risk of their own lives, and many of their lives would be taken for doing just that. That is shocking and amazing. And as you continue out of the books of the Gospels into Acts, what we see is that the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, falls on the disciples. It indwells them. It empowers them. They do some absolutely amazing things. Peter starts preaching the Gospel and thousands believe and are baptized. I mean, if you've not read Acts recently, please read it again. If you've never read it, Acts chapters 1 through 9 will lead up to what we're talking about in chapter 10. Absolutely amazing. Now, to be clear, Peter is sharing the gospel with Jews. And it's the Jewish people who become Jewish believers of Jesus Christ. But at this point, there remains a very real division between Jew and Gentile. And that is where our story picks up. In our story, there's two key characters. The first is a man named Cornelius. He's a God-fearing Roman. God-fearing does not mean Christian. God-fearing means that he's a Roman who believes, is in awe of, and reveres God. And he's God-fearing in that he gives generously to people in need, and he prays according to Jewish custom, which is at nine in the morning, noon, and three. But he's also a centurion, which means he oversees 100 soldiers. He's responsible, and he is well-respected. So that's our first character. Our second is Peter. Now, some of you may know Peter. He's one of the 12 disciples. Uh, Peter has a, a reputation. Not always the best, because, I mean, he's in the garden. Jesus is getting arrested, and he's like, not today, and cuts off a guy's ear, to which Jesus looks at him, and he's like, Really? Like, what about me makes you think that that's a good idea? And so Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, whoop, ears back on the guy's head, and he's like, what? It's amazing, right? So Peter gets a bad rap because he's a bit impulsive at times. He also denies Jesus three times as Jesus is arrested. No, I don't know him. No, I'm not with him. No, I don't know him. But we also know that Peter is a man of incredible faith. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And then he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter is the very first to be like, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. He's the first. And because of that, what we see is in Matthew 16, Jesus changes Peter's name from it was Simon at the time. He changes it to Peter and he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. On this rock. So Peter is a man of faith. So these are our two main characters in today's story we're telling, and what neither of them know is that God has them on a collision course. They don't know each other, but God has them to meet one another and to do amazing things. How does he bring them together? How does he bring that collision? The most natural method possible, dreams. 
He gives Cornelius a dream. He's praying at three in the afternoon, and God says to him, you need to send some men to Joppa to get a guy named Peter and bring him back. Cornelius wakes up. He says, all right, you three, go get him. So they go to Joppa. While they're on the way to Joppa to get Peter, Peter is praying, and he's praying at lunchtime. It's noon. And he's, he's got to be hungry, I'm thinking. And as he's praying, God gives him a vision. And a sheet is lowered from heaven. In this sheet, there's all sorts of animals. God says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> nope, can't do it, God. Which begs the question, well, why? Because Leviticus 11 lays out a very strict dietary law for Jewish people. And some of the animals in this sheet don't fit, they don't measure up to this dietary law. And so Peter, a good Jewish man, says, I can't do it. But then God says something that we cannot overlook. He says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The operative word is made, that God has made clean. Peter sees this prayer three times, sees this vision three times, and then he wakes up, and I think he's just like, Huh? <laughs> he does not get it. He is absolutely perplexed. Have you ever had that dream? You fall asleep. You're having a great night. You know, as far as you're concerned, you're sleeping. You don't know what's happening. And then you have this dream, and it is so vivid that you think it is actually happening, and you're like, what? What is happening, and where am I? And then when you wake up, you actually remember it. You remember the details of the dream, and then you're equally perplexed, and you're going, what? brought the crazy train to town last night. Did I eat something weird that I should not eat again because that dream was nuts? That is exactly where Peter is. He has no clue what's happening. Now, as he's uh, reflecting on this prayer, or this, this dream, trying to figure it out because he, is belie- he believes that God is, is saying something to him through it, as he's reflecting on it, God says, there are three men coming for you. Go with them. It's fine. Go with them. So these three men show up. In short, uh, they stay the night in Joppa, and then the next day they, they head to Caesarea in order to go to be with Cornelius. Okay? And that's where we pick up our story. Verse 24 is where we are if you're following along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius is awesome, is he not? So Cornelius knows this. God said, get Peter and bring him back. And while he's waiting, he's just like, this is going to be great. So he spreads the word. He invites his friends, his relatives. He's like, come on over. Something amazing is going to happen. They're like, what's going on? He's like, a guy named Peter's coming. Well, who's Peter? I don't know. (laughs) Why is he coming? I think he's going to say something. What's he going to say? I don't know. I'll have food. Come on over. It's going to be great. So he's throwing a party for something that he has no idea what it's going to be, what it's going to include, what it's going to look like. What a guy of faith. Is he not? I mean, like, that's incredible. So our story continues in verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Have you ever met somebody who has a hard time filtering their thoughts and their thoughts just 
and you're going, really? Did you just say that out loud? Like, maybe not the time. Peter walks into this house, and he surveys the people there, and he's like, hmm, these are not Jewish folk. <laughs> I'm not supposed to interact with anybody other than Jewish folk. And then he says that aloud. It's not like, hey, guys, nice to meet you. It's like, y'all know I should not be here interacting with you, right? Way to offend people right out of the gate, you know? But what he's doing is he highlights, he highlights the wall that divides. He highlights the wall that divides. At this point, there is a very real wall that divides Jew and Gentile. It is a cultural wall. And it, is, it goes back to the Mosaic law. And they are, Jewish people are not intended to, to interact with Gentiles. What we're going to find out is that is timely, not timeless. Timely meaning it existed for a time, but what we are about to learn is that God is doing a new thing. Now, before we move on, I want to pause and highlight what do I mean when I say wall today? What I mean is a wall is something that divides people based on differences. It divides people based on differences. A wall we may inherit, a wall we may build, or we may have a wall impressed upon us by the culture in which we live, okay? So a wall is something that divides people based on differences. Peter's understanding is that God's love at this point is exclusively for the Jewish people. That is his understanding. But what we see is that God is doing something new, and that's evidence as we continue in verse 28. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Remember that dream that he had? It was a little foggy. There was a cloud of confusion. That cloud is starting to lift. He's beginning to get it. So while there is a wall that separates, God has shown Peter that there should not be a wall. God has shown Peter that there should not be a wall or that there should no longer be a wall. In the OT, in the Old Testament, that's OT, uh, in the Old Testament, we read uh, about a Messiah that will come. It's prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he will be for all the people. You get to the Gospels, and you quickly read that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved and inherit eternal life. Those people will also then be called children of the Most High God. I mean, the most central verse to Christmas is Luke 2.10. This is good news of great joy for all the people. So there is everything that is pointing to this incredible thing that's happening. It's all pointing to the fact that there will not be walls, but those walls have not yet been broken down between Jew and Gentile. At the end of Matthew, we even see that God says, go into all the world. That's reiterated in Acts 1.8. God is for all the people. God is helping Peter internalize this new truth, but God is patient as well. He's not getting it right away, if you haven't caught on to that fact. He's warming up to the idea, and God is patient. But as we continue, as we skip ahead to verse 34, 35, we see that Peter is all in. The light goes off. He gets it, and he is about it. This is what it says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation. 
who fear him and do what is right. God accepts men and women from every nation who accept Jesus Christ, who revere Jesus Christ, who are in awe of Jesus Christ's goodness and have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. He accepts all men. He gets it now. He is all about this new thing. He grasps fully that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism, which then implies that he shouldn't either. It implies that he shouldn't either. And as we continue in Acts 10, what we read is Peter's proclamation of the good news to these Gentiles who are gathered together. And then we see their response, and we see something happen that has not happened yet in Scripture. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around uh, doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are eyewitnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, I want to pause really quick. We're going to continue in a minute. So Jesus is in the tomb. They're in the upper room. They're petrified. They are like frozen in fear. And then Jesus shows up, and it kind of sounds like when you read the account in John, it kind of sounds like all of a sudden Jesus just walks through a wall and is like, boom, and they're like, what? <laughs> like, those are my sound effects. I don't know that they made them, but... And, and then they sit down to eat together, and I'm thinking that they're like, their hand is on like a loaf of bread or fish, whatever they have, but they're all just doing this at Jesus. They're just like, <laughs> like staring, like, okay, take a bite, because I want to make sure it goes in you, not just like, and hits the floor. Because if it hits the floor, then you're a ghost, but if it goes in you, it's like, oh, he's real. He's alive again. I wonder if they went up and were like, like a kid, you know, like, hey, can, can I poke your shoulder, Jesus? Like, <laughs> Again, I don't know, but I'm just saying, what they're saying is we were eyewitnesses. We were terrified because he was dead. We saw it, we knew it, we believed it with everything in us, and then we saw him alive, and we ate with him and drank with him, and our lives are never going to be the same. Absolutely amazing. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, those are the Jewish people, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They are eyewitnesses. Peter shares what happened with them. They receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit of God is indwelling now, and that has never happened before, and that brings about disbelief to the Jewish followers because it says they were astonished 
They were astonished. Like, how, what? How? And so not only is God trying to move Peter in this understanding of this new thing that he's doing, but he's trying to move the Jewish believers in this new understanding as well, that God is for all the people. You see, in perfect love, he, God, welcomes all who believe into his family. In perfect love, he, being God, welcomes all who believe into his family. God loves indiscriminately, unconditionally, every human being who has ever walked on the face of this earth or ever will walk on the face of this earth is created by a God who knows them, loves them, pursues them, fights for them, and died for them, who extends patience and grace and compassion and mercy to them relentlessly. Every human being, which includes every one of you in this room and every one of you watching online, So what is our response? Well, my prayer is that we would strive to live a little bit more like Jesus every day. That we would strive to live and love like Jesus a little bit more every day. That we can acknowledge that the walls have been broken down. That the walls have been broken down. To highlight this, um, I want to go to Galatians 3.28 because this is... Paul, and he concisely talks about how the walls have been broken down. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What he's saying is that there were walls between you. There were things that separated you based on your differences, but in Christ you are united because God's perfect love unites. It does not divide. It unites. It does not divide. And so whether you are Jewish or Greek, whether you're a slave or you're free, whether you're male or female, you all have equal right in a relationship with Christ. Now I want to take you a step further and say that this isn't only God's desire for us with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for us with every person who's ever walked on the face of this earth, or at least is currently walking, because it might be hard for us to connect with people who have walked but aren't walking right now. But You see what I'm saying? Like, we should not be putting walls up between us and others. God's plan is to use us as a conduit of his love so that all can know of his amazing love. And when we build walls, it gets in the way of our ability to relay God's perfect and reckless love. And so he's saying, don't build walls. So what can we do? First, we can be like Cornelius and Peter and follow the Holy Spirit through walls. We can be like Peter and Cornelius and follow the Holy Spirit through walls. What I love about this story is Cornelius has a dream and Peter has a dream and they both Both dreams do not tell them what the end game is. God does not show them exactly what's going to happen step by step all at once. Instead, he shows them the first step. And as they step, he reveals the plan. And because they have faith, humility, and obedience, it leads to this beautiful collision where this amazing and unthinkable, immeasurably more thing happens. And now... We have not just Jewish believers of Jesus Christ, but Gentile believers of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely amazing. So may we be like Cornelius and Paul, and when the Holy Spirit leads us to reach across a wall, and maybe there's not even a wall, but across differences, 
that we would follow and trust that God is going to do something even if I don't get to see it. That he is going to do something and it is going to be incredible. The second thing is ask God to show you your walls. Ask God to show you your walls. Unfortunately, a part of being a human being is we can make like knee-jerk assumptions and judgments about people. We look at them and it's like, whoop, wall goes up. There's a difference there. And again, maybe those are walls that we've inherited. Maybe they're walls that are impressed on us by, by the culture that we live in. But we can be very, very quick to put up walls. And yet God is saying he does not want there to be walls in our lives. And so may we ask him to show us our walls. Now, I want to present a question that may help you identify walls in your life. What is your response to people who are different than you? What is your response to people who are different than you? They don't look like you, dress like you, earn like you, spend like you, vote like you, view social justices or social justice issues like Black Lives Matter, Police Lives Matter, the refugee crisis. They don't view those like you. They don't identify sexually like you. They don't worship like you. They don't think like you. They don't believe like you. What is your response? Maybe it was one of the group of people that I just named. Maybe it's multiple. But if your response is one of like <gasps> defensiveness, harshness, like no, I will not talk to them, let me lovingly say that is a wall. And God says, I love them as much as I love you. Help, ask me to help you tear down that wall. The next thing is with his help, start tearing down the walls in our life. With his help, Start tearing down the walls in your life. I want to present two incredibly simple, maybe borderline comical, because they're so simple, suggestions to get this ball rolling. First, acknowledge that people are people. People are people. Now, what do I mean by that? Focus on what you have in common, not your differences. When we focus on what we have in common, we have a way of seeing similarities as opposed to when we're only focused on how they vote differently or how they view this differently or how they worship differently or how they don't worship at all or how they live this lifestyle. When we focus on that, all it does is divide and create separation and that makes us not want to talk to them. So may we view people as people and as I've already mentioned this, we are created by the creator. We are created on purpose, for a purpose, with great purpose. We are loved, fought for, sought after, forgiven again and again and again. And as much as we receive that, God offers that to the people on the other side of the walls that we have built. And he's like, that is not just for you. That is for them too. And when you build a wall, what you're doing is you're inhibiting your ability to share that great news that you have received with them. So tear down the wall. Is it easy? No. One thing I want to highlight, God is gracious. How he dealt with Peter, gracious, patient, compassionate. And yet the end result, the goal remained the same. 
Tear down the wall so that more can experience the love of Jesus Christ. Tear it down. And then the second is this. Seek to understand, not judge. Seek to understand, not judge. What would it be like to sit across the table with somebody who didn't vote the same way you did in the last election and to seek to understand why they chose to vote the way they did? Not with the intention of converting them to your party for the next election, (laughs) but simply to hear. We live in an incredibly polarizing time where there is this and there is this and there is ultimately one of us is right, but there is nowhere in the middle. We cannot talk about it. It's this or this hard line in the middle. That is a wall. And God says, no, 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 that's not for my people. How is it that we say, this is my stance, but I want to hear more. Help me understand where you're coming from. Help me understand what led you to believe this. Help me understand and to ask caring, genuine questions. Again, out of a desire to learn about this person, to be able to love. Have you ever been listened to really, really well before? Somebody's asking you questions about you that are more than surface level, and then they ask and they listen. You want to talk about something that makes me feel most loved? That's it. I'm a long-winded person, people. So if you ask me questions and you really want the answer, you better buckle up because... Maybe a little while, but when people do, man, does it communicate value. And it communicates, I'm here for you even if I don't agree with you. So the first, people are people. Second, seek to understand. The last step I think we can take is to remember that we love being recklessly loved by Jesus. We love being recklessly loved by Jesus, so may we love others recklessly. Isn't it amazing when when you mess up, you do that thing that you hate doing, but you do it again, much like Paul says, why is it that I keep doing what I don't wanna do and I don't do what I want to do? And yet you're reminded that God's grace is still sufficient, that God meets you in the midst of that failure? that God says, I'm still here and I still love you. As we've received that beautiful, reckless love of God, may we then freely give that beautiful, free, reckless love to others because they are in desperate need of it just as much as we are. We've been singing this song called Reckless Love at Cornwall, uh, Bellingham, and in Skagit. And the lyrics just grip me every time. And I want to read just a little bit of the chorus to you. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. And I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, Reckless love of God. That is a beautiful reality, is it not? That is so incredible. And God is saying, as followers of Jesus, I am inviting you to live. I am calling you to live a life of love that is above and beyond, that is sacrificial, 
I want to share a few verses that highlight this truth with us. Um, 1 John 3, 16 and 18 say this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is saying it's going to cost us something. It may not cost us our lives, but it's going to cost us something when we live as Jesus or when we love as Jesus loves us. It will cost us. And it can't just be in words. It has to be through our actions as well. In 1 John 4, 8 and 9, whoever does not love does not know God. Let's pause. That is a massive statement of incredible weight that we cannot rush past. Whoever does not love does not know God. I don't know about you, but that's convicting. Does God understand that I mess up? Yes. Does he show me grace and forgiveness? Yes. Do I want to love more and more every day? Yes. Because I want to share his love because God is love. This is how we know, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Isn't that incredible? This may be reminding you of a truth that you already knew, but our life is found only in Jesus Christ, that we might live through him. So when we live and love the way Jesus did, when we actively sign up for being a conduit of his love to others, what we're also doing is inviting them to a place where they get to live through him and experience life like they never have before, a life of freedom a life of joy, a life of hope to a deeper level than they have experienced to this point in their life. And in the last verse, Matthew 5, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you uh, greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, those who don't know God or don't believe in God, do not even pagans do that. What he's saying is our love needs to be more. Our love needs to be bigger and better. It can't just say, oh, well, these are the good people and these are the people in my sphere of influence and I've kind of put walls between all these other people, so I'm, I'm good. I'm just gonna love the way Jesus calls me to love right here. Problem, that's not how God loves and we are called to be imitators of God. He is saying, love everyone. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He loves all. He loves all. Now, I don't know if you've been around Cornwall for a period of time or not, but we have a few discipleship goals here. And these goals are in place because we believe that it leads to a healthy life as a follower of Jesus Christ, but we also believe that our influence as a church in the community to share this love grows as we embody and live out these goals. I want to highlight the two that this story highlights. The first is restore hope to the hurting. Restore hope to the hurting. And you may be thinking, well, it seemed like Cornelius was a pretty successful guy because he was up in the Roman army. He was responsible for 100 men. He was giving generously to the poor. And yes, that is true. But even the affluent are hurting, or they can be hurting if they don't have Jesus Christ in their life. And so Peter shares the hope of the world with somebody who really is desperately searching 
So as a church, we want to restore hope to the hurting who are hurting for whatever the reason. And the second is to engage in relationship. That we would intentionally connect with people and care about them and invest in them and get to know them. And yes, as we've talked about today, people who are different than us, they look different, they act different, they believe different, that we would connect with them, we would engage in relationship with them so that God might open the door for them to ask a question. Tell me about you. What makes life rich, meaningful, significant for you? And then we have an opportunity to share. So here's my question. What walls do you have in your life? What walls do you have in your life? Maybe God has even highlighted a wall between you and one other person this morning, and he's brought that person front and center, and he's saying, this wall, that's what I want you to go after because the person on the other side needs to know me or because I want to see reconciliation in a difficult relational dynamic. So what walls do you have in your life? And will you start to tear them down so that you can be a conduit for God's incredible love to work through you? What's your next step? Now, in case you're thinking, wow, that's really big and cerebral and out there, let me give you a couple down-to-earth, everyday life examples. The first is in Skagit, um, our partner ministry, one of our partner ministries at our campus in Skagit um, is Young Lives. Young Lives is a young life ministry to teenage parents, teenage moms and dads, and, and it's an incredible ministry that exists to share the love with some, some young women who find themselves in a really trying time, trying to make sense of it all. And our campus in Skagit has gone above and beyond. They don't just host and, and say, use our facility, but people of Skagit gather, they cook a meal, they feed, they pray for, they spend time with. We've even had some men in the church say, hey, we'd love to hang out with the dads because we can't forget the dads. Like, we got to love on them, too, and so they hang out and play basketball. That is an example where they may have a shared history, but they're in a different spot now, and maybe they don't have a shared history, but they're reaching across something that could be a wall, something that could isolate teenage parents and saying, no, 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 we want to get to know you. We want to care for you. We want to invest in you, and that is an incredible thing. Um, a couple years ago, I was in the commons, and a guy walks in, and we'll just say this. He didn't look like me. He had dreads that were down to, like, his waist and um, had some tattoos and whatnot, and he was just a few steps inside the door. By the way, nothing wrong with dreads and tats in case you're like, oh, he's so offensive. Not saying that. I'm just saying, as you can see, no tats and no hair to have dreads. Um, so... He's standing by the front doors and he's surveying the commons and it looks like he's kind of assessing like, am I gonna stay or am I gonna go? Am I gonna stay, am I gonna go? And what I see next is beautiful. A woman who is in her probably late 50s, early 60s, beelines for him. And she introduces herself, and I'm not a part of the conversation, but she meets him and talks with him for a number of minutes. Simple. But our culture may say, a 58-year-old lady interacting with a guy in his 20s with dreads and tats, that probably doesn't go hand in hand. And yet she was like, I don't care. I'm going to talk to him. She went right through that wall. Um, I heard of a story. This guy, he uh, goes to the same coffee shop week in, week out. He's like, this is my coffee shop. That's what he says. 
And he's like, I just decided I was going to start asking the baristas how I could pray for them. And he said, in a little, like a month or so later, the manager came to him and said, you have single-handedly changed the culture of this coffee shop, and I want to thank you. Just because he was willing to reach across a counter, reach across a divide and say, how can I pray for you? And the last is something we talked about last week is our neighbor. Some of you have a neighbor, and we talked last week about there's maybe some tension, and you're like, I keep being reminded, I want to say hi, I want to say hi, I don't know how to say hi. And my encouragement was pretty simple. One, two, three, hi. (laughs) You may have a neighbor where there's some bad history, and you're like, they've done this, they don't respect me, they do this, they do this, I've had enough, wall goes up. I don't believe that Jesus ever says, give up on somebody. I don't believe Jesus says, when you've had enough, go ahead and tap out. I think rather Jesus sets the exact opposite example for you and me. And so how is it that we can make the most of the examples, or excuse me, the opportunities that we have every day to work on breaking a wall down, to work on walking through a wall or reaching to somebody on the other side of a wall to demonstrate love, even if it's a smile. What can we do? What's our next step? Just to be totally clear, in case you're thinking that I'm just talking at you, this sermon is absolutely relevant and pertinent in my life. Teaching this is convicting because I have room to grow. And I want you to know that. I'm not up here speaking in condescension by any stretch. This is something that, man, what if we all own this to a greater degree? Um, We're going to continue with the service. and We're going to sing a song called Reckless Love. And my encouragement as we sing that is to acknowledge that this is God's love for you. And it's also the love that he wants to share with others through you.